Turn with me in your Bible this morning to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. observed the Lord's table just a few weeks ago. I'm trying to do it in the first of the month, but we've had some times where we've had to change our schedule. But the last time we did, we were in 1 John chapter 1, and <clears throat> we're really studying different passages in different ways, the subject of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Certainly the reconciliation that God has made for us with himself. And then by application, we think in terms of the reconciliation that we have with one another or to one another. And as we began in 1 John chapter 1, we took a little bit of time to consider the theme in Scripture of light and darkness. Of course, this chapter tells us, as other places in Scripture do, that God is light. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And John, of course, has much to say about the light and the darkness. You can see in Jesus' teaching, the teaching of the light and the darkness, the light referring to what is good and ultimately God and Darkness referring to what is evil, the deeds of darkness. Darkness is symbolic of both ignorance but also evil. And when God saves a person, he brings them into the light. He gives them a knowledge of the light. And then we are called to walk in the light. I uh, was at a wedding yesterday for Pastor Dean Good's daughter, and his message was from 1 John 1 about walking in light. That was his message to his daughter and son-in-law to become and became yesterday. And I uh, just appreciated the reminder of what walking in the light is. And it is certainly applies to us in Christian life. And we've looked at, in, <clears throat> in this section, in the first uh, chapter of 1 John, of what it means to walk in the light. Um, and the claims that are being made here in 1 John 1, 5 through 10 have to do with sin and uh, the believer and the claims that a believer might make, or in one case, I believe at the end of the chapter, we have someone who's an unbeliever making a claim about sin. The claims that are made are uh, then dealt with by John, and he corrects if correction is needed for a believer or if correction is needed for an unbeliever. He is making the case plain as to what needs to take place. The first claim, you may remember, is the claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness. You can see that in verse 6. If, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, with God, who is light, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Because God is light, 
He does not fellowship with or partner with darkness. And so someone who is walking and living in darkness as a way of life is not truly in fellowship with God. John says if someone were to make that claim, they are lying and not practicing the truth. But then he says if we walk in the light, as we walk in obedience to God and fellowship with God, uh, it's not that we will not sin, but we will acknowledge our sin and we will be cleansed as we confess that sin. Notice the end of or verse 7. He says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So when you walk in the light, it doesn't mean you have no sin at all. It means that you, when you encounter sin, when you see sin in your life, you're dealing with it, coming to God, and God is, by his grace and because of Christ, forgiving that sin. Verse 8 is the second claim, the claim that involves some self-deception. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if someone were to claim that somehow they'd come to a place in their life where sin had been eradicated, they no longer sinned, John is saying that you're self-deceived, do not understand the nature of sin, the truth is not in you, you're not speaking the truth because God's word tells us we have sin. God's word tells us certainly we have sin, we do sin prior to coming to Christ, but even after coming to Christ, we have sin. And what are we to do with that? Well, verse 9 gives us instruction. We confess those sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I made the point, and I'll make it again, the Christian life is a life of ongoing confession of sin and cleansing and restoration of fellowship with God. Now, we know that Christ died that he shed his blood on the cross, and when we come to Christ, when we come to God by faith, we are justified, we're declared righteous, and there's a sense in which your sin is dealt with, it's forgiven, all of your sins are forgiven, uh, past, present, future, all of those sins Christ, of course, died for. And when you come to Christ by faith, you are forgiven for all those sins. And so you might say, well, then why do we have to continue to confess our sins? Well, passages like this teach us that in order to maintain fellowship with our God, that we continue to confess those sins. We continue to turn from those sins and confess those sins and come back to a place where we're in fellowship with him. The debt has already been paid. Jesus has already died. The provision for that sin has already been made, but we come to God in order to maintain that right fellowship. And so when it says uh, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us, how could he do that except through the blood of Jesus Christ? And we know that that's how we are cleansed from our sins. Now, the third claim, which we didn't really look at the last time, and I wanted to look at this briefly before we look at the first couple, chapter, or first couple verses of um, the next chapter. The third claim there in verse 10 is blasphemous. The first claim involved a lie, the second one self-deception, the third one is blasphemous. Why? Well, let's look at it. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and his word is not in us. So I understand what John is saying here. He's saying that if someone makes this claim, they're claiming to have never sinned. They're claiming that sin is not a part of their life. And what is the problem with such a claim? The problem is that's a direct contradiction of God's word. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 46 and repeated again in 2 Chronicles 6. When they sin against you, Solomon says, For there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy, so that they take away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. But then he continues. But he makes that parenthetical comment, For there is no man who does not sin. Another statement from the psalm, Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If he was to actually take account, who could stand up to his scrutiny and his measure of what sin is? He's given us his law. He's given us the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment. And if you were to just measure your life by those commands, there's not one of those commands that you've kept perfectly. By the law, the scripture says, is the knowledge of sin. Psalm 143, verse 2, and do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. And perhaps the one that's most familiar to us, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The perfection of of God. We fall short of that because we've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. So for someone to claim that they have not sinned is a direct contradiction of the words of God. And what does John say? If someone were to say that, we make him, referring to God, a liar. Because God has said that we've sinned. When we say we've not sinned, we're calling, that's tantamount to or equal to calling God a liar. God speaks the truth. He declares, of course, what is true, whether it's about this world or about man or whatever the case. And really, this is something, as you think about the testimony of God as God has spoken uh, the testimony of God is to be received over and above the testimony of any man. If you turn over to 1 John chapter 5 for just a moment and look at John's words. 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Why? Because God is greater than man. But the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. God has given testimony regarding his Son, Jesus Christ, and to not believe the testimony concerning his son, is to say that God is lying. 
Verse 11, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Back to chapter 1, if we say we have not sinned, whose testimony are we rejecting? We're rejecting God's testimony. This is God's word. We're saying that He is lying. Not only are we saying that he is lying, but if you say you have no sin, what are you doing? You're making yourself, by implication, equal to the one who does not sin, who has never sinned. You're making yourself equal with God. So when we say that this involves a blasphemy, it is certainly blaspheming to say that God is a liar. It's blasphemy to make yourself somehow equal with God as if you haven't sinned. Now, I don't know if you know anyone who makes that claim that they have not sinned. There isn't anyone here today who has not sinned. There isn't anybody that you know who has not sinned. Only God, only Jesus Christ has not sinned. And so that certainly means that when we preach the gospel, we know that we have uh, territory, you might say, that we can preach the gospel to freely. There's not going to be someone who this message doesn't apply to. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And so everyone, and that's Paul's point in Romans 3, everyone is savable. And so preach the message of the gospel. So John is taking these claims, he's dealing with these claims, and then he comes to a very, I would say, a tender word here or a message for his disciples. I say his disciples, I believe John is writing to disciples, those whom he knows very well. He calls them, just like Christ does in John chapter 13, my little children. It's a very tender expression. This shows that John's heart for them was loving, sincere, christ preface the new commandment, love one another with those words, little children. He talked about his going away from them, little children. He was going to take care of them. But this phrase, my little children, as it's addressed to them, someone said this is the appeal of a loving master to the good faith and good feeling of loving pupils. Okay? He's been talking about sin, and he's been talking about forgiveness. And he wants them to know as he shares his affection and love for them, here's why I'm writing this to you. Here's my heart, you could say. And so that same writer said, it's an appeal to their highest and holiest Christian ambition. And this is a wonderful ambition that he calls these Christians to. And it's an ambition that we need to be called to today. What's the ambition? That you might not sin. That you might not sin against God. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. One writer said, as he exposited this, that you may make it your express design and determination not to sin. What John has written about the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from all sin and the faithfulness and justice of God to forgive us should never be abused. 
This isn't to be taken as if, yes, God forgives, and yes, his blood cleanses me, and so I don't have to really worry about sin. No, what John has said up to this point should not be construed for us to think less of sin. The fact that God will cleanse us and forgive us and wash us and renew us to fellowship should not lead us to think that it's fine to sin. This is so that we will not sin. And there are some who, as they even, from a distance, understand the teaching about forgiveness, would suggest that that freedom in forgiveness or God's forgiveness could actually be taken to a point where someone just sins because they know they're going to be forgiven. That's not the attitude of a Christian. I had a conversation one time with a Muslim friend. His name is Aziz, and he asked me if I believed that God's forgiveness would actually lead to more sin. And I said, no, it's, it's actually just the opposite. At the time, I used an illustration of if I had been forgiven by a great king of some offense against him, would I then take that occasion or take his forgiveness as reason to then offend him again? To sin against him again? No, I would be indebted to him and thankful, grateful for that forgiveness. And I'd want to make up for and let him forget because of my faithful service that I had ever offended him. There's a pastor by the name of Donald Barnhouse. He pastored the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1927 to 1960. And a pastor who followed him told this story in a commentary. I thought it was a helpful story. I thought I'd, I'd give it to you. There's a young man, he went into the military, he spent some time overseas, was in a place where there was this access to things that he got into and started to live an immoral life. And when he came back from being overseas and had lived that way, he came to Christ. And as he came to Christ, he also met a young woman who knew the Lord and he had trouble opening up and expressing his love for this young woman, in part because of his shameful past. And so he really didn't, the relationship was not deepening in any way, and he went to talk to Pastor Barnhouse. And Pastor Barnhouse said, you really need, do need to open up to this young lady and tell her and just tell her about your life so that she understands and knows so that there wouldn't be any barriers to oneness in their marriage if they were going to get married. And the young man really did care for her. And yet still this young man hesitated, and then Pastor Barnhouse uh, uh, told him another story about a young couple, similar situation, and actually they had gotten to the place where they had gotten married, but the young man who had been married never told his wife about his past. But finally, he came to the place where it was causing enough problems because of their lack of oneness that he decided to tell his wife about his past, that he had lived a sinful life. 
And when he did, she responded. And some of this I'm trying to quote even from this commentary, the illustration. I thought it was very helpful. She said, I want you to understand something very plainly. I know my Bible well. I know something of the workings of Satan. I know that you're a thoroughly converted man, but I also know that you have an old nature to which Satan will certainly appeal, and he will do all he can to put temptations in your way. She said, the day may come, I pray that it never shall, when you succumb to that temptation and fall into sin. And she said, immediately the devil will tell you that you've ruined everything. And that you might as well continue in that sin. And above all, that you shouldn't tell me because it will hurt me. And then she said this, but I want you to know, as she communicated to him in their own home, she said, I want you to know that this is your home. This is where you belong. And I want you to know that there is full pardon and forgiveness in advance for any evil that may come into your life. As that young man was listening to Dr. Barnhouse tell this story, he said, if anything could ever keep a man straight, that would be it. That woman, in her communication to her husband, really reflected God. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if every one of us was willing to forgive like that? Now, I would guess if that man actually did fall into sin and had to tell his wife, there'd be some difficult things to work through, for sure. But to forgive fully, freely, would you want to sin against that if you had been forgiven? So to know that God has forgiven us, but what has it taken for us to be cleansed? It's the blood of his own son. That's what brings us to cleansing. That's what cleanses us. That's what brings us forgiveness. Would we sin against that? Someone who is so good and so loving to give himself. And you think of... Jesus, as he told the story of the prodigal and the willingness of the father to forgive his son. What a wonderful thing that God is willing to forgive us. And in light of his forgiveness, his grace, that is not ever to be taken as a license or abused. It's the very opposite So I would ask you today, have you been forgiven for your sins? Have you been cleansed by the blood of Christ? Have you been washed in the blood? When you truly think about that, would you ever want to sin against the one who did that for you? John is saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. Beyond this ambition, and and he's presenting it to them as, I'm writing it for this reason. Well, then, on the part of a hearer, 
what, what you would come to understand is that this is the desire. This, is, this, is my, this ought to be my purpose, that I might make it my design, my determination, that I would not sin against such grace. I just ask you, what is your Christian ambition? Is a little sin okay? As long as we sin just a little and we confess that, is God okay with that? No, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And he calls us to live as children of light. We're not to walk in the deeds of darkness. We're not to pursue those things. If you're living in darkness as a Christian, you need to repent and turn from that sin. Yes, God is a forgiving God, but that's not justification for continuing in sin. You're abusing that truth if that's the case, and that's sin. I remember reading Jonathan Edwards' resolution, and it's not exactly the same, but basically he said, if there was ever a true Christian, if there was ever someone who truly lived according to the teaching of the Scripture and obeyed God and had all in the right proportions, just the right way of thinking and the right way of living, he said, I want to be that one in my time. That's a little bit different than what we're talking about. But if we could at least start in the place where we say, I don't want to sin against God. I'm going to make it my effort, my design, my determination, my purpose, that I might not sin against God, that I might not sin against his grace. Now, all that being said, notice what John says next. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, and if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, so nothing before this should be construed to live, you know, in sin because we know God is forgiven. And really, this truth is not in, in, in a similar way. It's not there to tell us that we can sin and now we have a defender. But we are given encouragement and help on the way to heaven to know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. One person translated this word defender. We have a defender with the Father, someone who comes alongside of us. That's the meaning of the Greek word paraclete. He comes alongside of us, and in the context of sin, if we do sin, he is there to help us He's there to be our advocate with the Father at those times. Now, what's different about the ministry of Christ as an advocate, if you're thinking in terms of an attorney, he's not trying to in any way represent our case in such a way as to cover over certain things or suppress evidence about us so that we can get off. No, he's a good advocate. He's going to tell the truth, and he knows the law. And so as he communicates the truth, he communicates the truth about us. And the truth is we are sinful and we are sinners. And you look at the context here, 
the way in which I believe the next statement applies to his ministry as advocate, the way in which he advocates for us is a righteous way. Yes, Jesus is the righteous one. We look through the scriptures and we see, especially in the New Testament, he's even called the righteous one. When Peter preached the gospel in Acts chapter 3, he said, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Stephen, when he confronted the Sanhedrin and he was being questioned by them, he said, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. And then Ananias, not the one who lied and was put to death as a result, but the Ananias who came to Paul in the city of Damascus. He came to him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and see the righteous one. And Paul had the opportunity to see as he saw Christ Jesus in heaven, that's the righteous one. And of course, the Old Testament speaks of him as the righteous one as well. Isaiah 53, verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He is the righteous one. He always conformed to God's standard for holiness and righteousness. He always did what was right. Who of you, he said, could convince me of sin or convict me of sin? No one. But I believe the point here is, and that is true, so we're not dismissing that, but the sense here is as Jesus advocates for us, as he comes alongside and helps us, he speaks the truth, he knows the law, he is one with the Father, he is also on our side. What a wonderful thing to know that he is on our side that he speaks a word on our behalf based on truth. In fact, that's what someone said is the difference here between mediator and advocate is really a mediator may be a go-between, but an advocate takes another step and speaks a good word on behalf of the one that he's mediating for. I like what one person said, as sinners, we have the best possible helper because he is righteous. That is, in his human nature, Jesus is our brother, Hebrews 2.11, is acquainted with our frailties, Hebrews 4.15, saves us, Hebrews 7.25, and is our intercessor. He is also God's Messiah, the Christ, who's fulfilled the demands of the law for us and therefore has been given, <coughs> excuse me, the title, The Righteous One, and as a sinless lawyer, he represents us in court. He doesn't gloss over the truth. And the truth is, yes, we have sinned, but Jesus Christ is the Righteous One, and as he comes to the Father and intercedes for us, and he's not on his knees begging, because when he comes to the Father, he comes in all of his glory as the resurrected Son, He sits at the right hand of the Father, and what has he done? Why is his intercession so effective? Look at the next verse. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. 
Because as he comes to God as our advocate and as he speaks the truth, he tells the truth about us. Yes, we're sinners, but he also has, by God's grace, God the Father sent him to be the propitiation for us. That word propitiation can just simply mean an appeasement of wrath. There are different translations of this word. I think that is the best uh, and right understanding. Some people use the word expiation, which is a removal of wrath. Atoning sacrifice is a little bit more generic. Uh, One translation says he himself is the remedy for the defilement of our sins, and what that eliminates is the, the sense of that word propitiation, which has to do with the wrath of God. And God is, he's not like the gods of the heathen. They didn't really know as they offered their different sacrifices whether God would be appeased or not. God sends his own son to appease his own wrath on behalf of those who've sinned against him. And we can know and expect the truth about God, that God is a righteous God, that he will be appeased if the proper sacrifice is given. And this proper sacrifice is, of course, Christ. The sinless Son of God, who was our substitute as he came in the flesh, lived a sinless, perfect life, lived a righteous life. Not only did he pay the debt of our sin on the cross and appease God's wrath against our sin, but he also lived a perfectly righteous life and earned our way into the holiest place. And that's why the veil was rent in two. We have access now because Jesus appeased the wrath of God. Just turn over, if you would, quickly to Romans chapter 3. Paul talks about this in Romans 3. One person said this is the most important paragraph ever written. Verse 21, Romans 3, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace, (coughs) excuse me, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. How was that propitiation made known? Well, God sent his son to this world to hang on a Roman cross in view of all that we might know that God hates sin, but that he loves the sinner. Jesus by shedding his blood, propitiated, appeased the wrath of God. That wrath that if it is on you, if you have not turned from your sins, will continue on you in this life and will be extended throughout eternity. Unrelenting, unending God's anger because of your sin. God hates sin. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He cannot allow sin into his presence. For those who do not find refuge and safety under 
that sacrifice, that covering of his son that don't find uh, refuge there are going to have to bear that wrath for all of eternity. And so the appeal, certainly in light of who Jesus is as the propitiation, is come to Christ. Put your trust in Christ. Find refuge and safety in Christ. He is a shelter in a time of storm, but the storm of God's wrath will come and it will never end for those who do not believe. And that's why John preached, flee from the wrath to come. Those who had the greatest apprehension and knowledge of God's wrath were saying, you better run from it. You better turn to Christ, find safety, find refuge, find forgiveness. Turn, if you would, back to 1 John. This word, propitiation, and what did it take for Christ to be the propitiation for our sins? It took his suffering and death on a Roman cross, the shedding of his blood. Do you want to sin against that? Someone who shed their blood for you? Is that reason to sin? No. It's the very opposite. So John is saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Do not abuse God's forgiveness. Do not abuse the advocacy of Christ. Do not abuse what Christ has done as he suffered on your behalf. And not just for you. Not just for you. I think John makes a wonderful point here at the end of verse 2 where he talks about the extent of Christ's atoning work. It says he is himself is the propitiation for our sins. John, speaking to these disciples whom he calls my little children, he had a relationship with them. This is a church, some would suggest, a church of Jews or Gentiles, but regardless, he's talking to a group of Christians in the first century in a specific part of the world. And I don't believe John is trying to solve any kind of a theological issue here. There's some who try to cite this verse to deal with the extent of the atonement in a sense of a limited atonement, particular redemption. I think the point here that John is making is that it's not only for us, but it's for the sins of the whole world. It extends to all the nations. It extends to those who will believe in Christ. That forgiveness, that propitiation, the appeasement of wrath. Now we have to be careful here because John is not talking about every single person who ever will exist or does exist. And when I, when I say person, I'm going to extend that beyond just humanity because there are persons, of course God is God in three persons, one being, but three persons. But there are angels as well who are persons, who are a part of this world. John cannot be saying that Jesus in his death propitiated God's wrath for all of those persons because you'd have to include Satan in that. You'd have to include the evil angels in that. You'd have to include those who reject him in that. And for those who reject him, for those who turn from him, are their sins propitiated? Are they, is God's wrath against them appeased? The answer is no. There's, in other words, there has to be some limit here. John is not preaching or teaching here 
universalism. Universal salvation is the idea that there is no eternal punishment and that everyone eventually will be saved, united with Christ in heaven, that what Christ has done has actually atoned for all man, irrespective of their faith and their belief in life. The Bible doesn't teach that. John is not saying that here. John is also, I don't believe, trying to say something about every particular individual. But I think a good parallel passage would be John chapter 11. If you turn over there. John chapter 11. When we say a parallel passage, we're saying a passage that deals with the same subject, maybe some different wording, but gives us some light as to what that passage may be referring to. John chapter 11, Jesus, of course, in the midst of his ministry, was envied by the chief priests, the Pharisees. Look at verse 47. My Bible, there's a section here that says a conspiracy to kill Jesus. Verse 47, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will come to believe or will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Verse 15, nor do you take into account that it is expedient For you, that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, what's interesting about that statement is John makes the comment here that although he said that, he did not understand fully the implications of what he was saying. Look at verse 51. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Now, when you say nation, when we talk about America being a nation, who are you talking about? You're talking about the people. You're talking about every single individual. Well, some of the individuals even speaking here were the ones who rejected Christ, who killed his followers, who never repented. So if we get down to the individuals, we would say there are some of these individuals who are under the wrath of God presently, would be under the wrath of God permanently because of their rejection of Christ. So John is speaking about the nation in its totality, but he's not extending it to every single individual. And notice what he says next. Look at verse 52. And not for the nation only. So not only for the Jews but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So as he extends the application of the work of Christ, the one who dies for the nation, he's also dying to gather together the children of God who are scattered abroad. It is the death of Christ that propitiates the wrath of God for all those who are children of God who come to God by faith. And I think that's actually the biblical emphasis. It's those who have faith. And the call in light of such a message, in light of the atoning work of Christ, 
is not to try to limit, limit, limit. We understand ultimately there will be some in heaven, some in hell. God knows who they are. Our opportunity in the knowledge of the fact that God is a Savior, that Christ is the one who died on the cross, that he is the propitiation, our opportunity is to tell people indiscriminately. We don't hold back. We proclaim the good news that if you believe in Christ, you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's our message. Our message is Jesus is Lord. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's our proclamation. And there is a Savior. And you and I can say to any person, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. I leave the rest to the Lord. Who knows? Of course, he works by his spirit. He uses his spirit in the world to convince men of righteousness, of judgment, of sin. But he uses us as we proclaim the gospel so that men will realize. And then by his spirit, he works. So if you turn back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, what is John saying here? Christ is an advocate. That's not reason to sin. Christ is our propitiation, not just ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And I think if you added one more picture that would help us understand the nature of what Christ has done and the availability of the remedy, or you could say salvation to all, it's the picture of that brazen serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. The people had sinned against God. They justly deserved his wrath. God said to Moses, make a brazen serpent, make a brass serpent. Lift it up so that all the people can see it, and if anyone looks, they can live. If anyone looks at what you have made, and Jesus, of course, used that as a type as he proclaimed the gospel... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes, again, the emphasis on faith, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Any person who had been bitten by one of those serpents and was, was in a, a state of they were going to die if that venom continued through their body, all they would have to do is look. And upon looking that act of faith and believing God's word, they would be rescued. They would not die. Look to Christ for salvation. Look to him with the eyes of faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There are some who are in this audience who need to do that. You need to put your trust in Christ. You certainly need to look away from anything that you've done as having merit with God. And find refuge in the one who can save you, who can grant you eternal life. And he will. Only God knows. But he will receive you if you come to him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.
What a merciful, faithful high priest. What an advocate we have. That he would be willing not only to come as high priest, but to be stripped of his garments for glory and beauty. To come down from heaven where he was worshipped by the angels and come down to an earth where he's contradicted by sinners. And then to give himself to die. So that sinners might have eternal salvation, eternal life, a dwelling with God forever. And Lord, I pray if there is anyone in this congregation today who does not know you, Lord, that they would turn today and find refuge and safety from your wrath in Christ. And for those of us who believe we delight in these truths, we rejoice in these truths. Lord, help us never to abuse such truths. And we pray that in light of all of the resources that we have, we haven't even looked at the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, but in light of all of the resources that we have, that we would make it our ambition not to sin. And that we would pursue that and give our strength to it and know all the time that Jesus is right there, not only as our advocate, but our helper. He'll come alongside he cheers us on and helps us in the path to glory. Give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.